This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Jonathan Miller, returning champion, returns for his fourth appearance to talk about housing and all the craziness that is going on. We discuss, is housing in a bubble? Are we looking at the death of cities? What's going to happen with urban real estate from both a residential and a commercial perspective, just everything involving real estate. And we talk about something that you may not be aware of, but as someone who runs one of the larger real estate appraisal and data analytics firms, he's been very influential in this space, discussing systemic racism that's built into the real estate market, both from a realtor and an appraisal basis, how a lot of the industry groups are in his terms, like me, he said, they're they're white, they're male, they're older. They have not been uh, appealing to a more diverse crowd. And a lot of people in those industries are aging out. Uh, and so the why the appraisal groups and why the realtor groups um, have been so far behind the curve that they're starting to be subject to a whole lot of external pressure to become more diverse, to to bring in more women, more people of color onto the groups that oversee the industry. And um, Jonathan's been very influential in that space, has applied a lot of pressure both to the appraisal group and the real estate group, and starting to see results. More media have been covering the subject, and we, we actually discussed some crazy stories about African-American families who have learned that if you're going to do a refinance of your home and you want, or you want to sell your home and get it appraised, take out all the photos of your family, put in photos of a white family, and have one of your friends or neighbor meet the appraiser and pretend it's a white-owned home. It could be worth 40% more in the appraisal. Crazy stuff that he's been very, very critical of. And the media is now just starting to pick up on it. There have been a few stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post about this. Anyway... This is just a a fascinating conversation about real estate with one of the most knowledgeable people about the industry. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jonathan Miller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Jonathan Miller. This is our fourth interview and the first let's call it post-pandemic edition. Uh, Jonathan is the founder and CEO of Miller Samuel, one of the largest real estate data analytics firm, as well as being an expert appraiser. In fact, he is the sought-after, the go-to appraiser for some of the most expensive penthouses in New York City. Their data powers a lot of the publication that many large brokerage firms use for their own analysis and media presence. Jonathan Miller, welcome back to Bloomberg. It's great to be here, Barry. And uh, I feel like every time is a new adventure. So the fourth time is can only be better. Right. So let's start our adventure talking broadly about national housing. What What is the state of the national residential real estate market here in the U.S.? Well, it depends on your perspective. Uh, if you're a seller, it's a it's an it's a robust 
market. Uh, not quite a bubble, but uh, it is uh, characterized by a chronic lack of supply across the entire country, uh, combined with uh, record low mortgage rates, um, a little bit of an uptick recently, but uh, uh, that is creating this insatiable demand. And it's, uh, it is, it is a national condition. It is not you know, pockets of the country. It's seemingly national, and uh, it certainly doesn't seem sustainable. So, so it's interesting. It it's interesting you're saying it's created by these low mortgage rates, but we've had very low mortgage rates for a couple of years now. How much of this is driven by the pandemic? We heard a ton of stories about, hey, I just got to get out of this tiny apartment with my family anyone who could afford to buy a house did is that is that still a driver here uh, absolutely so the way i the way i've looked at the pandemic is it is the great disruptor you know it it has uh it made zoom the remote office technology ubiquitous in 24 hours it also uh caused a lot of people to sort of think about their living conditions and fantasize about moving or going somewhere. Uh, in many ways, it made things like the, uh, the, the federal uh, law called the nickname the SALT tax, uh, Job Cuts and Recovery Act, that uh, really fueled a lot of uh, the migra a good part of the migration to Florida. Um, there's been a whole thing, bunch of things that have tri been triggered and I think it, it just was triggered by the pandemic in terms of being uh, over the top. And what's surprising, especially in a lot of our contract data, we cover about three dozen housing markets for Douglas Solomon Real Estate nationwide. And the contract activity is not slowing down. In other words, um, sales activity in many of the markets we cover, like Southern California and Florida, are seeing new signed contracts that are double last year's level or more. And, um, and we're starting to see, you know, a lot of that surplus inventory that Florida was known for be, uh, be, you know, eroded to not saying that there's a dearth of supply, but nowhere near the, uh, the levels that we saw pre pandemic. So you could blame it on the pandemic or, you know, claim at the pandemic, but I see the pandemic is more of a, you know, a, the disruptor that made these things, accelerated these phenomena. So why is there such a shortage of houses for sale and, and how long will it take for a supply to catch up with this big demand? Well, uh, so I think the question is how, how much more will prices rise before demand cools? Uh, we don't have this sort of institutional credit middleman that is enabling purchases. Credit conditions are still sort of, you know, defaulting to more conservative than the historical norm in terms of mortgage underwriting. I'm not saying, um, uh, you know, we have, we're, we're not seeing liar loans, maybe things like that on the margin, but generally we're seeing, you know, a little bit more conservative uh, views taken by mortgage lenders than we, you know, clearly saw in the housing bubble where you just had to have a pulse or fog a, more, a mirror um, to get a mortgage. We're not seeing that. So at some 
point, things are going to, uh, the demand will slow because of lack of affordability. One of the big challenges, I think, over the last five or six years, that was way before COVID, is that inventory has been chronically low for a long time. I mean, basically since the financial crisis. And one of the problems or the reasons for that is that a lot of national home builders have pivoted to luxury. You know, I think luxury, you know, high-end home building was the norm in most urban markets around the country, most suburban markets. Like, it was all about that. And one of the drivers of that has been, uh, you know, land prices haven't had a chance to reset after the financial crisis. Uh, You know, rates plummeted to the floor after – um, uh, you know, the Lehman moment and, uh, you know, various other issues and uh, really fueled a frenzy, which kept land prices high. So even today, we're just not seeing, um, you know, that component change. And now with lower mortgage rates and the surge of demand, resources like labor and materials are off the chart. So it's really difficult to build affordable housing. So I think you know, um, the outlook for that is not so great if you're looking for uh, housing activity to increase in, you know, a very at a, in a very large way. Um, and I think and then on top of it, we have a new layer of demand in the market, which is um, investor homes, which are um, you know, a remnant of the foreclosure crisis about a decade ago where Wall Street came in, like Blackstone and other groups, and bought a ton of foreclosure properties. Everybody thought it was an in-and-out strategy, and apparently, you know, it's not. And we're probably going to see more of that. It's a whole new segment of the market that is going to end up competing with the uh, everyday, you know, consumer homebuyer type. Yep, that that's one of the unintended consequences of making bond yields so low Anything that can be financially engineered to look like a bond yield, and I would think middle-class rental homes probably can be massaged into that. That's an issue. Right. But and go on, go on. No, I was just going to say, on top of that, like that, and now it's becoming a vehicle, like uh, you know, to you know, for a family that wants to get their children into a better school district, you know, but they can't afford to buy the house; they're renting the house. Uh, you know, there's hmm. a lot of. Um, and, and now with Zoom and, you know, this sort of remote idea, I think the next big topic is in housing is going to be, you know, where do you live? Uh, and I know that's a sort of silly, open-ended way to say it, but uh, there's a lot of rethinking that's going to go on uh, what human behavior is going to be like, you know, in this next couple of years after hopefully the pandemic uh, is brought under control or eradicated or whatever the scenario is. Because Zoom is the residual. It's still, you know, it's not going away, and its implementation into housing has it has an incredible has and will have an incredible impact um, on rethinking the way we think about the relationship between work and home. Yeah, that that's kind of fascinating. You know, my my wife and I, who we know each other socially, we know each other's wives. We, early in the pandemic, we would just get in the car and go for a drive and look at different neighborhoods, including houses. We So I've been in this house, I think September is seven years. And we 
drove through neighborhoods that we had looked at and really liked, but said, you know, that commute is just, it's just 15 minutes too far to do five days a week. Well, pre-pandemic, I started working from home on Fridays, so it became four days a week. And post-pandemic, I wonder how many people are going to be going into the office two or three days a week, which means those more distant, I don't want to call them suburbs, exurbs, the further right or almost exurbs, right. Right. That that next ring out that maybe it's it's more than an hour commute, maybe it's a 90 minute commute. Are people going to start looking at those as viable options for the magnet cities like New York or D.C. or San Francisco or Chicago or Miami or wherever? Is the premium you're going to pay for being 30 minutes from Manhattan going to get arbitraged away and you're going to start seeing those 90 minute commutes tick up in value? Absolutely. I I think it's already happening. We're seeing in the suburbs that ring New York City, we're seeing a hotbed of activity as you move farther out. And part of that is affordability. So, uh, you know, you can get more as you're further away um, from the city uh, because, you know, I think that I think the way to think of it is uh, and this is sort of a generic application is you have uh, right now you have the big office towers in in New York and likely most other cities are 80 to 90 percent empty and um, and they will, you know, fill back up uh, as everybody start to feel safer, which with the rapid vaccine adoption, uh, that seems to be happening faster than uh, what everybody anticipated. Um, but, you know, pre-COVID, about 5% of the workforce was 100% remote. And, uh, and if, you know, and there's a lot of talk of that doubling or tripling or even more. So it ends up being 10 or 15%, um, you know, not a huge increase um, relative to the total uh, workforce. However, uh, more than 50% of the remaining employees are going to be in this, in the following of the scenario that you're just talking about where, you know, maybe they work five days a week. Now they work in the office. Now they work four or three or two. And I think what you're going to end up seeing is you're going to see a trade-off of fewer commuter, fewer miles traveled for commuting, but the average length of a commute is going to be longer, and um, and in fact, one of the uh, one of the terms I've used to describe this, and I've made great effort to get this into the Urban Dictionary, is the term co-primary. Uh, that you know we've seen housing markets that were seen as second home markets, like in the New York metro area, there's the Hamptons, or there's upstate Connecticut, or there's the Hudson Valley. Where those markets are, you know, they're vacation homes. Uh, that's where you got a vacation home. And now they're becoming a second primary home because the consumer, uh, you know, says, hey, I'd love to be able to be out here and work, you know, a good part of the week. Uh, we're seeing the same phenomenon in Aspen, Colorado, that I cover. Other sort of, you know, you think of vacation type markets, you know, the, the question it would be asked, well, who wouldn't want to live in Aspen, um, even though they have a big home in New York or a big home in Florida or whatever? So you're seeing this recalibration of, I call it the tether between work and home. The length has become 
you know, infinitely longer. And like you said, there's going to be an arbitrage that goes on in that relationship. Huh. So given all that and given these rising prices, I mean, obviously you make a $10 million house, there's a ton of markup on everything, but wouldn't you expect... What's the median home price today? Something like three fifty. I haven't kept up with recent increases. Right in the threes, yeah. Right, but but now yep. look at depending on the region. Look at the under a million, but over half a million. That's like a solidly upper middle class home in in a lot of the countries. Wouldn't you think right. there's a ton of demand for that? Wouldn't that attract the builders to move into that space? Uh, yes. The problem is that land prices are. Um, are the problem that uh, that land, you know, as a factor in the equation. So uh, when you think about property appreciation, you know, if you're absolutely thinking in pure wonky terms, what's actually appreciating is the land in terms of housing prices rising. Uh-huh. It's not the improvements. The improvements depreciate. Now, of course, when you renovate, the value of your home goes up. But I'm just speaking in sort of general terms that the the appreciation is the cost of the land uh, is really what's driving higher home prices. And that's what builders are facing, are uh, higher land costs, you know, aside from all the other issues like lumber and uh, and labor, et cetera. Um, so it really is a challenge. I, I don't know how that gets resolved. The other thing is um, there's been, uh, you know, tremendous hype. I know specifically in the markets that I cover uh, that there's been a tremendous hype about the suburbs being more affordable. And so that's part of this narrative. The cities are expensive. Uh, you know, so the suburbs are cheaper. Um, the problem is that in the last couple of quarters, the, the, you know, the, as we came out of the sort of lockdown period, um, we're seeing like in New York Metro, the suburban housing markets that ring those markets, about a third of the closings that occur in each quarter are sold above the last asking price. Wow. Meaning they went to bidding wars, a third of the market, right? So that that sort of and and at the same time you're seeing weaker housing prices in urban markets, um, or not you're not seeing the same rate of growth. Um, that's been sort of one of the patterns. So there's this been this equalization, if you will, of um, of comparison. Huh. Quite fascinating. So let's start with. A re- another really big question, which is, this is the end of cities. True or false? False, but let me add a qualifier. The, the, the driver of this narrative is just, it's, it's, for lack of a better word, it's just dumb. Uh, <laughs> and, and the reason why I say that is because the, um, the problem with the... Um, the problem with the, the way this is thinking, and, and, and I'm, I'm a little Manhattan-centric, so let me just tell it from that perspective, and then I'll sort of spill out to the U.S., is that, uh, you know, when we had this, um, uh, the lockdown uh, a little over a year ago, and everybody is hunkered down, uh, you know, Manhattan, what, there was this a sharp outbound migration to the suburbs, 
and uh, and the rental market collapsed. We saw rental prices fall about 25 percent, 20 to 25 percent, depending on the segment. We saw home sale prices not really fall immediately, but volume collapsed, uh, you know, falling more than 50 percent. And a lot of the deals that closed during the lockdown were just contracts that were virtually closed. You know, no one. Or, you know, maybe you could count on one hand, maybe the number of people in the market that actually bought something uh, sight unseen and just did it virtually. And the narrative was that what, you know, it was people are fleeing this. The the narrative was fleeing the city in sort of air quotes or exodus in air quotes. Um, And the suburbs were the beneficiary. And there was going to be this sort of structural permanent move to the cities from the cities to the suburbs. Uh, as it turned out, the narrative should have uh, not been city to suburban or urban to suburban. In New York Metro, it should have been Manhattan to the outer boroughs and suburban, because Manhattan was really uh, the laggard. The uh, boroughs like Brooklyn and Queens, while their rental market was pummeled, their purchase market was a frenzy. It was They were acting just like the suburbs were. Huh. And, uh, you know, what we saw initially was just this massive um, uh, outpouring from the rental market, rental volume, new leasing activity fell between 70 and 80 percent on a month over month basis in April. I, you know, it was just a collapse. And uh, and that many of the you know, the first time buyers in the suburbs actually um, came from the Manhattan rental market because they're less um uh, they were less anchored to the city. I always felt that many cities went about two or three years beyond what I would call an affordability threshold. And so they were much faster to leave when they didn't feel safe and they didn't have public transportation convenience without being concerned or cultural activities. There wasn't anchoring. But but the, the false assumption is that all those people – um, are going to be outside the city forever, um, and there was just a, a pivot, and that is not what happened. And in fact, uh, in the la- in the recent quarters, uh, especially this first quarter, and as we look at it on a monthly basis, as we go into the spring market, which is sort of the Super Bowl or World Cup of every housing cycle, uh, I think that the conventional wisdom was, well, now that the city Manhattan is starting to fare better. Sales activity is up year over year. Uh, rental, the rents are not falling. I mean, they're falling a lot, but they're not falling by nearly as much. Instead of 25%, they're falling, you know, 14% um, month over month. Rents are stabilizing. Uh, and so you would think that Manhattan's signs of positive, uh, you know, in, improvement or, you know, parity with last year would mean that the suburbs are, you know, a dark, dystopian hellscape, you know, that no one's there. They're, and that's not true. That suburbs are thriving, too. So externally, I think there's a lot of this is just, um, you know, mortgage rate driven uh, that and, and combined with sort of fear of personal safety. And um, and that's really all it is. So the narrative of urban to server, and I think has been really over overstated on top of that. Uh, there was a really good story uh, or study that came out of the Fed, the Cleveland Fed, using New York Fed data that basically showed that um, really the reason for the light population in the cities 
uh, or lighter is because net migration involves two numbers, inbound and outbound. And the inbound's been on hold. People aren't going to move into an urban location if they don't feel safe. Right. With the vaccine adoption, we're seeing record new leasing activity uh, in in the city. Uh, every month since October, is, for its respective month, has been the highest on record. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of churn. And that is, uh, it doesn't mean we go back to where we were. We're still at peak Zoom. I think Zoom is still going to be a factor. But by no means um, are the cities far from over. Of course, I'm biased. I love New York. I love the city. And I was just sort of scratching my head feeling, you know, everybody's writing the city office. It's it's over. And I I just don't see that. So let me see if I can reiterate a few key points and and ask a few follow-up questions. Uh, My view has always been, hey, city-states have been the dominant form of culture, art, economic, business energy for 2,000 years, there's a reason for that. It's not going to just disappear. That said, you see some of the crazy pricier cities like New York and San Francisco. Are we looking at a potential price reset? And we haven't talked about office space, but assuming that there is an excess of office space, is that going to get converted to residential? What how do you see this playing out over the next couple of years? Yeah, so those are really good points. I do see, um, uh, you know, I think many people don't realize like the, what I call the eye candy of real estate, you know, the stuff that is the, the, the uber luxury, the billionaire's row of Manhattan, say, for example, uh, you know, that it's not housing for mere mortals, I like to say. Uh, I think many people don't realize that since 2000. 16, 15, 16, which was the peak of the post-Lehman um, uber-luxury development market, that prices in some buildings are down 50%. Uh, like you look at a building uh, like 157 um, on, in, uh, you know, there were, there were seven or eight resales in 2020, and the median uh, decline in price as a resale, meaning the sponsor, the developer sold it in 2014 and then resold and then sold to, you know, the, the person that bought from them resold at some point uh, in 2020. Uh, you had like uh, one sale that was 18% below, five or six sales that were 40% below, and one that wow. was over 50% below what the, the, the seller originally paid from the sponsor. That's quite a reset already, and that was going into the pandemic. That's um, 157 you know, 59th t- Street, Jonathan? Is that the, what you're uh, talking 57th about? 57th Street. 57th Street. 57th Street, um, uh, you know, in the, what we would call Manhattan Central Business District. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of that reset was, had already happened before uh, COVID, before the pandemic. So... Um, so I don't I don't see that you know the, and that was a market that was heavily uh, invested in the idea that there was a wide and deep uh, market for uh, billionaires for mega you know ten million and up type units and as it turns out there isn't you you had uh, written that are... a lot of those buildings were not sold out a couple of years ago did they ever sell through all no. the units. No, there's still 
Like in aggregate, if you do a survey, it's well over half the units aren't sold. Really? Uh, some, you know, the earlier in the the earlier in the development boom post financial crisis, they have higher sellouts than the more recent entries. Uh, but it's uh, in aggregate, it's about half. Uh, oh, that's so that's amazing. Not very successful, but. On the, uh, you know, on the flip side, for the developers themselves, many of them broke even on construction costs at 40 to 50 percent of sales. Wow. Um, and so they, they can hold these things for years. Um, but it's, you know, it, it had a limited sort of lifespan. And that is not the, you know, it's like you're driving down the highway, um, you know, at 80 miles an hour. Uh, and then you get off the exit and the exit speed is 45. It feels like you're going five or 10 miles an hour. And I think that's the danger in looking at sort of Uber luxury. Uh, I see it as a circuit sideshow and not the real, you know, the real issue, which is it's very difficult to build affordability, affordable housing in New York. It's very complicated and in any urban market. And that's a challenge that's been around, you know, for, for centuries. Let's stick with the topic of urban apartments that are for sale so I'm hearing you break this into a couple of different strata. Uh, affordable housing, which if anyone's been around Manhattan, and, and full disclosure, uh, our offices are like uh, half a dozen blocks apart in, in Midtown near um, right. Bryant Park. Um, affordable housing has pretty much been pushed out of Manhattan to the outer boroughs. There's some, but it's becoming fewer and further between. Then there's sort of mid-priced housing, and I'm hearing you really differentiate between what I think of as luxury housing, which is a nice apartment on Central Park West or somewhere on the Upper East Side with a balcony versus these crazy uber-billionaire housing. And and those are two different right. strata. How are they managing in terms of sales, and how important is that to urban centers like New York or Chicago or San Francisco or Miami and, and down the line. Is, is this, is this a sideshow or is this really a key part of the real estate market there? Well, the, uh, the circus sideshow I'm referring to is this sort of Uber luxury category, which, you know, really starts at 5 million and up. Uh, you know, the first wave of new development after the financial crisis was 10 million and up. And then they realized, you know, that was too much, and so split the units in half or whatever, and you're starting to see, uh, you know, well, you're not starting. You've been seeing, uh, you know, very slow adoption and large repricing, uh, significant repricing from, say, 2014-15 highs. The balance of the market, um, new development is being snapped up. Uh, the lower you go in price, uh, the the faster they are absorbed. So the challenge is how do you create something that's affordable because the demand is there. It's just, there's just not enough of it. And that's the problem. The way we sort of prime, you know, the sort of, you know, the optimum new development pricing um, for like a modest two bedroom, uh, you know, is really going to be, you know, two to $4 million when really the market demand is more like one to three. So right. sort of there's not quite a match. 
uh, because it's been driven by land prices. Land prices, you know, have been, you know, historically, you know, Manhattan land prices have always been very high, but it's also very complicated and difficult to build in New York. And it, it takes a person, you know, with pretty much, you know, an insatiable drive to develop to do it. And, you know, the rewards can be very high. Uh, just a side note, you know, uh, you know, language and how things are articulated is everything. In the 1950s, the term luxury meant that you had an elevator and maybe had a doorman. Um, like, a, you know, like that was luxury. You know, today luxury, you know, is, I mean, I define luxury in any housing market I cover as the top 10% of transactions by price. I don't, I do it in an objective way, not a sort of, um, you know, a subjective way. Uh, but that market, you know, often behaves very different than the balance of the market. Right. And, you know, the market is very segmented. And I think when we look at real estate and talk about affordability, uh, we tend to sort of look to the very high end as sort of a reason. But, you know, when you have a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, sort of an average one-bedroom in a modest building, selling for a million five, right, as sort of an average, you know, that's that's a big number. <laughs> but, yeah. that, but but it does not, have an elevator, right? I mean, so it's it does worth have it. an elevator and does have a doorman, okay. and and you can it does have a you have a bathroom in your apartment. You know, you definitely have the basics. Right. Uh, There's no is. doubt that top 10% is different than the rest of the market. And you and I had a conversation a long time ago where we discussed mortgage rates are just not relevant to that market segment. Right. Until the pandemic. So huh. uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit when I say that. Uh, so, so the way to think of Manhattan in aggregate, all the sales transactions uh, are – uh, in any given year, we have about seven years of data, are about 50% cash, wow. meaning uh, that they bring cash to the closing. Now, they could have gotten financing in Ireland and brought the cash over, but you know, we mostly, don't really to see that. It's mostly no – so I, I, to, I don't know if we discussed a buddy lives on Central Park West, and he was trying to do a refinance of his mortgage, and he found it incredibly – problematic and and he was working his way through this is when rates first collapsed and he went to the head of the co-op board who was a buddy of his and said right. hey what what's the problem why are you guys having such a hard time with all this paperwork and the guy paused and said i won't mention his name but he said you're right. the only person in the whole building that has a mortgage the entire building not too far from the dakota Everybody right. was a cash buyer. Just to give you a sense right. of wealth at that level, nobody is borrowing for their primary residence there. How much and, is it? Twelve million? And, and, all right, I'll write you a check. Right, exactly. And it's not their right, and they have multiple residences. So the way to think of it is when you, you before the pandemic, you'd split cash buyers at fifty percent of the market and they're they scale by price. So uh, the the more reliant users on financing tend to be at the lower end of the price spectrum. So when you talk about under a million dollars, you know, roughly uh, 40% of those buyers uh, rely on a, on a, I'm sorry, 60%. They 40% they pay cash, 60% wow. get a mortgage on average. As you move to, say, the upper end, like north of $5 million, it's around 80% pay cash and 20% get financing. 
But I would argue that the 20% that get financing uh, don't do it for the purchase. They do it because their financial planner said they can get a deduction. Um, And what has happened post-pandemic, and I, I think this is a temporary blip, is that the numbers have shifted a little bit and that even, you know, instead of 80 to 90 percent people paying cash at the top, it's like 70 to 80 percent. It dropped about 10 percent just because rates are so low. How could you not take advantage of them at that, you know, free, even free at that money. price point? Yeah. Um, and because the market has been so soft at the top that you don't need that to differentiate you from other buyers like you did five, six years ago, um, you know, by paying cash and not having a mortgage or mortgage contingency. We're starting to see, see, um, uh, you know, uh, well, we're we're continuing to see um, bidding wars. Even during the pandemic, we saw bidding wars at about about three and a half percent of the Manhattan transactions, which seems like a lot, but in 2015, it was 31%, much like the suburbs are today. It's a um, But we are seeing some upward price pressure now in some of the segments um, that are, um, uh, that are, you know, we're starting to see a little bit more intensity because inventory, uh, which was bloated during the lockdown, has come down and it's just about 10, 12% above the long-term norm. So we're not really dealing with a market that's just lousy with inventory. It's really tightening up a bit. So I have two last questions related to cities. And and the first is we started talking about office space. Let Let me ask that question in a different way. Would you be a buyer of commercial real estate in the city? Have those prices fallen enough that doing conversions are financially attractive, including to those pension funds and and institutional investors that are are looking at real estate? Or has that reconfiguration, has that reset not taken place yet? So so when you think about a real estate transaction or real estate market and how you get to the point where prices are much lower, uh, there's always a step missing in this process. And we're in the middle of this step, and I'll explain. So Think of it this way. There's an external event and sales activity plummets because of whatever. You know, think of COVID, right? So so transaction activity plummets, uh, whether it's leasing or, you know, office building purchases, it plummets. So what happens right after that? Inventory kicks up a lot, right? Uh, You know, supply and demand go in opposite directions. And so the next assumption, the next step is that prices fall except for the part where the seller has to capitulate to market conditions. And that takes a couple of years. It's like, think of a, you know, a seller in, you know, your neighborhood and they wildly, you know, uh, you know, they, they, you know, the market plunges, you know, the factory closes, it supports all the jobs in the town and they don't reset their price because for, you know, they've had this built in idea for a long time. And I think that's what's happening with, commercial landlords uh, where, um, you know, where there's going to be an aftermath that's going to be different. Um, The problem right now is that it's, and there's a lot of funds, there's a lot of money being raised to sort of scavenge, you know, the the dead carcasses. 
but I think that's a multi-year process down the road. And the reason for that is because it takes a while for the landlords to capitulate. Other thing is, you know, they have, they're locked in with tenants, you know, that might have five years left at a full, you know, a, you know, pre-COVID sort of rate. Uh, and so I think this is going to play out in sort of slow motion is my guess. One thing I'll say about remote work and, you know, right now I like to say we're at peak Zoom. Um, and so this is not how it's going to be for office workers, but it's not going to be the way it was pre-COVID. It's going to be somewhere in between, and we're trying to figure out where that is. Um, the same goes with landlords, you know, that, that uh, you know, uh, office space. Um, we prove that remote working actually works, but it's not optimal. It's very difficult to, you know, train new people, uh, to, you know, to create office culture, you know, so it's, it's, it works, but it's not perfect. Uh, and after COVID, like I said earlier, it's still here as an option. So we're right. going to see downsizing and we're going to, you know, uh, uh, but we're also going to see at the lower rents, we're going to see an influx. I call it a, a youth renaissance. Um, right. And that's what I'm kind of excited about, about, you know, for cities is, you know, one of the challenges of, the urban of urban markets was, you know, the whole new urbanism trend, you know, walkability, you know, mm -hmm. your, your local, you know, your, you live three or four blocks from your office. It's an easy ride on public transportation, grocery and any shopping is within like a two or three block radius. The problem is, is that uh, as development expanded in cities across the country, their creative class, the working, you know, working class, were completely squeezed out. Right. And so were, you know, a lot of office workers where they had to live in the suburbs and then sort of commute in. Um, and so what's happening now with rents down sharply and sales to a lesser degree because they're down modestly in terms of pricing, um, you're already seeing, we've been seeing record inbound or we've been seeing record new leasing activity, like the highest since the financial crisis for like the last five or six months, but prices are still falling. And that's pulling in a whole new sort of demographic uh, that I think will have profound implications for the rejuvenation of the city, sort of, you know, I'm calling it like a, a youth renaissance. And that applies to companies, uh, companies that wouldn't be able to afford Class A office space. Now, the people left, you know, holding the bag here are landlords uh, who have enjoyed a tremendous, you know, advantage for a long time. But I think, you know, for the mid for the short and midterm, I think that, you know, it's going to be a very challenging world for them. To say the very least, I was kind of surprised we were in the city this weekend on Saturday. I actually took my wife and her sister down to renovation hardware which is down in the meatpacking oh, yeah. district, because um, my sister-in-law wanted to buy a dining room table but wanted to see it first. And I was shocked about a number of things. First, I was shocked that I was able to pull up and get a parking space half a block away, which right. is right. unheard of. And then second, um, I tried to get lunch re reservations like days before. Everything in the neighborhood with outdoor seating fully booked up, which is a positive economic sign. And then when we were leaving, I was shocked at how 
parts of the village in Soho were just now Saturday was beautiful out, but it was just jam packed with people. It was it was a party going on, mostly young people out and about, mostly masked. That's a whole nother discussion. But yep. Midtown was a ghost town and downtown was just full bore. Is that a residential versus office comparison? Because I didn't know how, how else to read into it. I, when you come yeah. through the tunnel and you make your way down to the, you know, the meatpacking district on the lower west side, you pass through three or four different types of, of neighborhoods. And granted, Midtown is usually quiet on the weekends, but this was really quiet, especially because Soho was just banging. It was amazing. Right. So I, so I look at this as the way I describe what you just said was Manhattan and cities in general have an optics problem. And so when you think about like a, a story on Manhattan or a San Francisco or, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, the central business district, the camera pans over the vacant boarded up retail and piles of garbage. And you say, wow. You know, this is this represents Manhattan or Chicago or and then you go to like the Upper East Side or, you know, uh, another a number of um, all the residential neighborhoods. They're vibrant. Uh, it's not normal. You know, everybody's wearing a mask, uh, but there's a lot of activity, a lot of outdoor dining in the nice weather. And it, it just it's encouraging, but it's it's a it's a complete opposite visualization of what you're seeing in the central business districts. And, um, and I think that changes over time as more and more people come in. I think the, the big sort of pivot point is going to end up being around September, but maybe earlier, because that seems to be when corporate America is talking about calling their employees back. Uh, uh, you know, and I think this is a function of the acceleration of vaccine adoption um, you know, that, that seems to be the default answer. Uh, but you're starting to hear some financial firms talk about, I think it was Credit Suisse and SAP, and, um, and I think it was J.P. Morgan or Bank of America were talking about July, June, May uh, as really starting to ramp it up. And, and two things happen when that happens in, in the context of central business districts like, you know, Wall Street or Midtown is that uh, you immediately send oxygen to street-level retail, uh, which, you know, thousands and thousands of office workers are not in that locale, and all of a sudden they are. So that's going to – that I think there'll be rapid deployment or resurgence in retail. I'm not saying it goes back to pre-pandemic, but it it's tr- improves dramatically at a fairly fast clip. And then the other thing is I think that – you know, the rental markets in the central business districts are going to boom um, in the short term as this callback happens, um, uh, which then sort of brings up the sort of aggregate numbers of, you know, the, the various markets that we cover in terms of, you know, real estate activity. And and I think that's and, – and so I look at 2021 as this sort of, you know, gradual process as opposed to some sort of light switch. But I think the closest we get to a light switch is when corporate America feels safe enough or their employees feel safe enough 
to start calling people back on masks, recognizing that it's not going to be everybody, but it's going to be dramatically more than we are seeing right now. I think people, when they think about remote working, they sort of stereotype it as you're sitting in your suburban house and you're working remotely uh, with your colleagues, you know, who may or may not be in the office in Midtown, for example. But I got to tell you, a lot of the remote work that's going to happen, I think is going to happen uh, in, um, in the city itself. Just because someone, say, works at home, wants to work at home for a couple of days a week, well, they li- may live in, you know, Washington Heights or the Upper East Side or Soho, and they're still doing that. So it's not working remote shouldn't be sort of pigeonholed as suburb into sort of, you know, uh, cities. Um, It's 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 everywhere into, you know, where these companies are located. Very interesting. So last question on the segment on cities. When do you go back to the office and when do you have your staff come back? So right now. Our staff is uh, already, uh, you know, I'd say we're about 20% back, uh, but alternating, we have a schedule so we don't have too many people in at the same time. You know, we have some people that live within walking distance and don't want to, they love their spouse, but they don't want (laughs) to sit in their one-bedroom apartment while they're both working all day or they have small kids and they alternate or whatever. Um, So that's... uh, so that's already happening. Uh, I'm very anxious to get back in personally, uh, but I'm going to start it slow. I live in Connecticut, and I'm a commuter. And I've had yesterday was the two-week anniversary of my second COVID shot, so I feel much better about coming in as well. You know, and I'm anxious too. So starting in May, I'm probably going to come in one or two days a week as a regular schedule. Right. And um, and before the pandemic. For the last like 12 or 13 years, I was only coming in three days a week. I was working at home. I was already working at home on Mondays and Fridays. Um, And so now, you know, I end up coming in two days a week. It's sort of probably the maybe stay home one one more day than I normally would. Are you going to drive? Are you going to take mass transit? Going to take mass 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 transit, you know, wear the N95 mask try to stay away from people. I'm going to still be, even though I'm had the, have had both doses, I'm still going to be very cognizant of, first of all, um, you know, there's still risk uh, and, and there's still a lot unknown. Um, but I, I, I want to start going back in and I'm just going to be very um, prudent about it. Uh, and I think most of my staff feels the same way. We're probably not going to have everybody in for, you know, probably not till the fall. And and what we found is that the remote really works, but the big, big, big challenge of it and where it doesn't work, where it fails, is mentorship. Yeah. You know, we're really busy. We anticipate being very busy for the next couple of years. We're desperately trying to hire people. and um, But you can't train them remotely. You can't you know, they, they're not immersed in the office and overhearing, you know, all the problem solving with valuation questions. So it's really a, it's really a dilemma uh, that we face. But, you know, safety always comes first. Huh. Quite fascinating. 
Let's talk a little bit about something you've been writing about for a long time. And there are two key issues here I want to touch on. One is racial prejudice in the housing market. And then more specifically, the topic you've been writing about is issues of racial inequality and lack of diversity within the housing industry itself. You've been a pretty vocal critic of your own industry when it comes to this. Tell us what's wrong with the housing industry. So, yes, uh, if you you think back to the 1930s and think about uh, the federal government and the redlining that was prevalent um, and the deed restrictions, covenants that uh, were in place for housing in housing markets throughout the United States, I know, you know, the Northeast, you know, where I've grown up and live as live now, uh, you know, big part of the history of housing and how housing markets grew and um, were shaped. And so one of the things that is extremely obvious in my own appraisal profession is that uh, we are uh, an aging professional of middle-aged white males. Um, That is what we are. And the reason we are is because the leadership in our industry uh, is um, uh, sort of sets the tone. And and so I'll give you an example. Uh, To be a licensed or certified appraiser, uh, you have to follow standards called USPAP, United uh, U.S. Uh, professional Appraisal Practice, uh, Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. It's called USPAP. And, and the problem with USPAP is that the organization that administers it or, or sets or basically sets the, you know, sets the uh, criteria for entering uh, into the profession, you know, what's how to behave, uh, they they have technical boards for specific things, and one of them is called the AQB or the Appraisal Qualifications Board. And from this organization's founding, because appraisers weren't licensed, um, it became the licensing uh, licensing requirements really started in the early '90s with FIREA, and uh, and and really are. Uh, there's been no change. So, for example, the AQB has not had a minority member until this year, and only because of external pressure from myself and others that have been writing about this. They literally set these the these standards for entry into the profession, which is anemic, has been anemic for the last 20 years, uh, and so we're aging out. And the reason for that is I think it's just blindness that they don't realize. So they set up a diversity committee. And it's headed of white by a guys. White guy. Yeah, <laughs> which is insane. And that what that tells you is they can't see it, right? right. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of um, – there's been – I believe it's three stories that are being recycled over and over nationwide about you have, uh, you know, um, a uh, an African-American couple refinancing their house or some example like this. There was one in 
story made in uh, described in Florida, another in California. I forget where the other one was, but it's all the same sort of idea where where the appraiser comes in and they appraise it for X, and then the uh, the homeowner, you know, has their their uh, non minority uh, neighbor come in and act like they're the you know the occupant, and they take down all sort of personal photos, and then magically the home appraises for more, and they're able to get their mortgage, et cetera, or you know because you know that you know, and it's sort of you know uh, you're you're basically saying, look, you know, this was a a, a prejudiced outlook on the, on the value, and um, and I think in of a lot of those cases, uh, you know, and, and who knows? I'm sure this is one of those things that happens a lot. It certainly happens in the brokerage industry. There was just a big Newsday um, story uh, last year, um, you know, sort of an undercover type story. So it is prevalent. It's prevalent in, I would suspect, every industry because uh, systematic racism is is here. It's, you know, it's, it's here. It's just one of the things that society is sort of grappling with. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, it's, it's in my industry, it's a big thing. And, and there's nothing that is big. It's all lip service. It's all just, I call it like checking the box. Like, Hey, we have a diversity committee, check that box. But there's nothing inherently different. It's the same people that have been in charge for over three decades, right? And, and they just realize now it's a problem only because outsiders are telling them it's a problem. We have the same issues with um, our largest trade group, the Appraisal Institute, where, uh, you know, a handful of women and no minority representatives, uh, you know, as senior executives. Uh, it's just an inherent systematic systemic problem. Um, but it's being blamed on the local appraisers, um, uh, you know, as like that's the reason. And I think it's more top down. It's, you know, the people that are sort of attracting people to the profession, the people that are setting the standards for entry. I, th I think one of the biggest problems in our industry is that uh, unlike being an accountant, um, until you have two years of experience full time, you can't be licensed, can't be certified. So it's, can you see the catch-22? How do you get licensed or certified unless that person is like a family friend? Because on the economic side, since the financial crisis, and thanks to Dodd-Frank, um, in order to remove moral hazard from mortgage lending, a lot of the um, appraisal functions, like the ordering of appraisals, the reviewing of appraisals, has been shifted to giant third-party um, uh, institutions uh, who take half the fee. So, so you know, you on your mortgage application take you know pay X dollars and don't realize that fifty to seventy percent of that dollar goes to a third-party uh, company that all they do is make sure your license in your state. Uh, make sure that you're compliant with whatever regulations are, and that's it. So you're you can't attract new people in because the compensation has, you know, fallen through the floor. And then the regulations that we have are created by people that are completely immune 
to what the challenges are. Um, and so we're really at a crossroads where a lot of this stuff is being pointed out in public, uh, but it's, you know, it's been built in for a century or nearly a century, over a century, but in specifically to housing. Uh, and there's no sort of proactive response. So people like myself and others have been very vocal about it, naming names, you know, you know, feeding the public intel about what's going on to try to affect some sort of change to bring more diversity and more people into uh, different, you know, real estate industries. And that's been my passion for quite a while. So, so it's funny you mentioned most people who who are in the suburbs probably don't realize. Most white families probably don't realize how systemic it is. And and the moment when I realized was reading one of the biographies of Robert Moses, where I, and who Robert Moses was a famous builder who who had done parks and beach just you know all over new york state his fingerprints are everywhere highways and bridges and just endless infrastructure projects and in the new york area there are highways and parkways and what separates them is the parkways are cars only you can't have trucks on it and they have these beautiful stone archway um i know that some of these are in connecticut also in westchester oh absolutely the, yeah the, these archway overpasses and i just thought they were pretty it was only reading one of his biographies that i learned that these were designed to keep buses from the city from going to these suburban parks beaches etc which at the time were all white and i had no idea it was literally a physical impediment to keep urban dwellers out it was it was a sort of shocking moment when I learned that you've criticized the National Appraiser Board um, and I've read some stuff about the National Association of Realtors what what's going on with these big umbrella organizations aside from just the total lack of diversity in their membership right right they're definitely challenging uh, the it's you know interesting the story you just told uh, uh, that was in the power broker by Robert Caro that's the book I was thinking that was of the first and that is the first book I read when I moved to Manhattan. And uh, and I just felt like I had to know how the city was built. And it was a spectacular read. I highly recommend it. Um, you know, I think uh, in when you think about the real estate world, the real estate community, there's still um, – uh, the, these trade, you know, you have to remember that these are trade groups, so they're doing everything to uh, help their members sell more, you know. And and so I think when we look at NAR, National Association of Realtors, they have, I believe, they spend. I I, I thought I read this recently that they have the highest like spend per lobbyist in Washington, or one of the top people. And, um, you know, their whole thing is to make real estate transactions easier and faster. Um, I, you know, when we saw it, when we, this news day story on Long Island, I would imagine that's the default everywhere. That's not, you know, Long Island is not, you know, an outlier. Um, and there's, there's just not a lot of insider discussion about how to fix this 
just like there isn't in the real estate appraisal community, which is a tiny sliver. Um, my profession has about 75,000 credentialed members across the U.S. Uh, NAR has like a million four, million five members, I believe. Um, dramatically bigger, you know, tremendous lobbying power. And they do have an appraisal uh, sort of subset um, within their organization that has done some really good work, but still the problem remains nat nationally. Um, uh, and, you know, it's really interesting. There was a uh, study that was done by the Brookings Institute, Institute um, like two or three years ago that was part of a court testimony, I mean, a court testimony, a congressional testimony uh, in Washington, which basically said that um, appraisers, like it didn't understand what appraisers do. And I think this is one of the big, biggest challenges in valuation is everybody really knows what a real estate agent does, but they don't know what a real estate appraiser does. And the, and that makes us sort of, um, you know, we get blamed for a lot of things. And one of the blame, and we were seeing this in a lot of articles in the public, is that um, we're the ones that set pricing in a, in a, in a neighborhood or a city. Um, and the problem is, is that our profession is really a, a profession of observers and we, we create opinions for a living. So certainly vulnerable to prejudice in, in that regard. But our, our goal is not to set markets. Our charge from lending institutions that we do appraisals for is to give a, a market value opinion on what the property would sell for if it's sold for today. You know, what, what is it? And um, we don't say, you know, we don't make a neighborhood lower priced because there's, we're literally using sales from the neighborhood. So maybe it perpetuates right. uh, the problem, the larger problems. And there's this really mis a big misunderstanding about, you know, the role that we play and other people play um, in the industry. And I'm telling you, you know, there's a long way to go and it needs to happen quickly. Um, because it's long overdue. Right. That's funny you mentioned that the the one accusation is you're, you're helping to hold prices down. During the financial era leading up to it anyway, the criticism of appraisers were, well, they're using comparables. So if a neighborhood is becoming a bubble in price, all they're doing is saying, look, all these other comparables sold for crazy prices, so therefore you could give them a mortgage for this crazy price. Right. I mean, you know, that, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and this is part of the, the problem is that we're not forecasters. We're right. not predicting the future. We're saying, here's something that sold yesterday for this price, uh, three-way bidding war. So what is the collateral worth today? The offset to that is the credit profile of the consumer that's buying, which we right. have nothing to do with. Um, if we were in the forecasting business uh, and there was a you know more liability attached to our um, you know what we're writing about, then um, you know the costs of an appraisal would be you know five times four or five times what it is now, which I'd gladly I'd love that. Uh, but that is not what the mortgage sort of machine wants. They want costs to be nominal. Um, and in fact, uh, during this Sanchel, or during this uh, pandemic, 
the GSEs, which arguably, uh, you know, have about 90% of mortgage flow through their hands, um, about uh, something like 70-something percent of mortgages that were issued during the pandemic did not have an appraisal. They were, they were just, you know, they ran their sort of their own Zestimate um, against, you know, their own, you know, there's, there's Zestimate would be the consumer-facing ABM or automated valuation model, um, and they're running their own. So, you know, that could be a nice little uh, mortgage challenge down the road. Uh, but, um, but what's really interesting, and this is something that's off topic, but when we think about Zestimates or ABMs and their accuracy, if you ask most consumers, and I find this amazing, you know, uh, the Zestimate has a median accuracy rate of 5%. Okay. So when you really think about it, they hear 5% and like, wow, within 5%, Sounds good. um, that's, that's amazing. Except for when you actually read what they're saying, that means that 50% of the, t- the median accuracy, that means 50% of the time, it's within 5%, and 50% of the time, it's not. It's pretty wild. And that's basically the AVM world that is, uh, you know, the, the idea of automation. Um, so, uh, you know, which is something that we're sort of migrating towards over time. Huh, quite fascinating. So, point blank, are, are home prices in a bubble? No, I don't think so. And the reason is we don't have that that help we got from the um, mortgage industry in terms of when you don't qualify for a loan, you can't get one. And um, <laughs> one of the things, if you look macro, uh, mortgage volume is uh, in the U.S. has, in terms of like the average loan amount, has not kept pace with uh, home prices. So actually we're not as, we're becoming less leveraged, even though, you know, there's a tremendous amount of sales activity and prices are ramping up, Um, as opposed to Canada, which it's the opposite, which we're seeing mortgage volume rise faster than uh, its associated housing volume. So, you know, maybe this go around, they're gonna have the problem that we did that they didn't have in our housing bubble. Um, And so I, I, uh, and I think the one thing that's good to remember and something I just, I've discussed before is that mortgage underwriting is not normal. It It is tighter. You know, if we go prior to uh, the housing bubble era and then and then go 30 years prior to that and, and use that as the standard, we're tighter than that era. So. Uh, I feel very good about that. We deal with lenders all the time, uh, and there's you know there's a lot of seriousness applied to mortgaging. And, and in fact, uh, you you definitely are seeing you know lenders could be lending more, uh, but they they are not uh, they are not on the same page because as they were in the past. Uh, because they're they're worried about the future and the you know future risk, and I think that's really encouraging because to me it suggests you know and you know we 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 know that each new each time it's different, but um, that that I it doesn't seem like we have a a mortgage or a, a banking crisis you know laying at our doorstep that's obvious um, and and uh, you know I think that 
at some point we're going to see, you know, home sales activity dissipate simply because, you know, financing is going to become a problem. So th- this is a crazy new era where in order to get a mortgage, you have to qualify for one, have an income, a right. credit history, and, and a down payment. Um, so obviously right. it's different than it was in oh five six seven. But the flip side of that is how much of this is interest rates driven and what happens if rates start to tick up and what else might cool off this market? Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I always hate the blame or the, the driver on low mortgage rates uh, just because, you know, rates have been falling for over 30 years and housing prices have gone up and down and volume has gone up and down in the cycle. So there's lots of other factors and mortgage rates, people that sort of track it and live and die by it, um, you know, they miss a lot of the color, you know, you know, that sort of results in the pricing uh, decision that buyers ultimately make. But it is, um, I just think you can't go wrong uh, when you when you have lenders sort of leaning away from risk when it comes down to this, uh, so I'm not I'm just not that um, I'm just not that concerned about it. I think things will cool off activity when we hit a certain level. Uh, I've read that about 50% of people that have a mortgage in the U.S. have a rate that's four percent or less. Wow, and uh, and so I. Uh, and this actually came from uh, my friend Ivy Zellman at Zellman and Associates. Sure. Uh, and the uh, uh, so I start thinking of if we top four percent, you know, that's when we it starts seeing like an off switch being flipped, or you know, for the sort of extra activity that we've been you know, the market's been enjoying, um, you know, with the, the rate drop. Um, but oh, that's I, amazing. Uh, it's a, it's it's kind of shocking uh, that that many people have, you know, are that low. So when um, we bought this house, and I want to say it was 2014, so it's about seven. I know it's 2014. It's about seven years ago. People thought I was crazy when I said I'm going to do the variable uh, mortgage, even though it was at the low low rate of 3.75, and it's since slipped to just under three percent. And I'm just about the point where I'm ready to say, okay, let's convert this to a uh, to a to a um, fixed rate mortgage. But I remember having people say to me, "You're doing a variable at three seven five. I'm like, "Well, as soon as right. you can show me signs that rates are not going rates lower, rates will never be lower." <laughs> right. Well, the, that happens all the way down to zero, and uh, you know, right. even if it ticked up, th- this is a hundred and fifty basis point limit, and you could always convert it to to fixed back then. But I didn't think I was right. taking a big chance with that. Um, the, and, and what I've noticed is I've seen increased solicitations now for refinance your mortgage. Those, those are taking yeah. up again. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot uh, made, and I, I don't quite know the answer to this, but there's a lot made on, you know, one of the points you brought up is, you know, you know, what's inventory like? Is it, you know, why we have so little of it? And one of the reasons, I don't know if I, and I'm sure there's a study, I've never seen one, but, you know, one of the, the reasons now for low inventory is people don't want to give up their low rate, right. uh, you know, that they're not quite, and, and I, 
I don't know. I uh, I hear that kind of you know it sounds it sounds logical until you really think about it, and I I I I'm not quite quite there yet. You're going to roll um, out of a three percent to a three point five percent. That's going to affect you moving right. To a so you're not going to move because right, that you makes need no sense. another bedroom or whatever. But that's used. That logic is used a lot, and I uh, I need to be better educated about it because I'm not buying it. Hmm. So you'd men- mentioned the Zestimate, which is the Zillow estimate, but there's now a whole new world of iBuyers and Open Doors and even Zillow that had gone from mere apps to facilitate transactions to actually becoming buyers. Tell us what's going on in that world. You you were involved with one of those apps some time ago, weren't you? Yeah, I was... Uh... I was on the Trulia Industry Advisory Board a year before they had a, or before they had a website, um, and wow. they came out a year after Zillow. And then uh, by 2014, they essentially merged, or you know, air quote, uh, were bought by uh, Zillow. And um, and then I, you know, I was out, but I um, I learned a lot behind the scenes, and uh, you know, in many ways, it seems like. Uh, you know, the, the, for those listeners that aren't aware of what an iBuyer is, essentially a company comes to you and buys your house from you. You don't put it on the market. You know, they give you an offer and they factor in repairs. There's a bunch of charges. And, um, you know, for many sellers, it's actually more than a commission might be if you sold for the same price. Uh, but there's a the convenience. You don't have to show your house. You have to let, especially during you know, this period of, you know, uh, pandemic and all that. Uh, and so, so when it first, when, uh, and I've heard a presentation by uh, Open Door at a, at a conference I was at, you know, before the pandemic, and it's pretty impressive, but it always struck me as, uh, because the margins are razor thin, right. uh, that uh, it only will work in a homogenous housing market, like, Think of Phoenix or Las Vegas, you know, where these firms really, um, you know, do a lot of deals, uh, activity of transactions, because the housing stock is very similar. So you can be more precise. Um, I think Zillow was uh, late to the party, uh, but certainly had the wherewithal to jump in quickly. The problem is, and what's interesting is in their iBuyer effort, They've had a press release that they're not using their estimate technology, <laughs> which, which I think, I, I don't know about you, but that to me says something. <laughs> they're technology. saying there have to be a low ball offer because they're buying it to resell. Makes sense, right? If you're, you know, yeah, any place right. you see sell your car for cash, one eight hundred cars or whatever it is, you know they're they're going to pay you less than if you sell it yourself, and it has to be the right, same. With right, right, right. And you know, for some, that's a convenience. Like right. you, know, you don't want to hassle with all that and the stress, and maybe it takes five months. And uh, so I get it. There's going to be a niche, but I think with the the, the all this really burst on the scene, and Open Door was really, and there's OfferPad, there's others. Um, you know, I think that it was like, hey, this is going to replace traditional brokerage and it's going to be, you know, it's a dominant form of, uh, of selling your house. And, you know, I think it's, 
there's a market for it. I think it's just going to be a, play a much smaller role. And the problem is that, you know, these companies are investing billions in technology to be able to get comfortable with valuation. And, um, and it's really, uh, seems, seems like a pretty risky venture. Uh, and, you know, one side of it is after the, uh, pandemic lockdown started to occur, all these companies ceased operations because they've never gone through a down market or, you know, what could be a down market. I thought that was really interesting that, you know, a lot of the, you know, the boom we're seeing in fintech and all this is predicated on rising market conditions, you know, strong sales activity, growing sales activity. Um, And, and this, that just sort of caused me to pause a little bit. I, you know, it's like, and, and I was saying this before the, pandemic um that you know these these haven't been tested in a down market and how does that work does their inventory explode you know as sales really slow down how does that work and yeah. uh, they haven't been tested yet so i think it's an evolving model it's here to stay and um and i think um you know they're they're going to work really hard to figure it out and there's going to be thinning the herd so to speak um you know with all these companies out there there's not enough room for all of them right it, it, it's hey listen the inconvenience of selling your house on the market and, and having people trample through your living space that convenience has a value but i assume that value is i don't know 500 bucks 2000 bucks but it's not going to be let me sell this house for thirty two thousand dollars less than i otherwise would have get gotten i don't think it's worth that amount so it'll be interesting to see how this progresses over time yeah and i think i think just like everything in this uh sort of post-lockdown pandemic world there's going to be a there's just a recalculation going on right now of all sorts of things and this will be one of them huh. Re- really interesting last question before we get to our favorite questions you had briefly mentioned salts which is the um the tax state deduction tax, for state and law. local right taxes against your house, which um, the previous administration had slashed to about ten thousand dollars, which I know infuriated people in blue states like New York and California and and Connecticut. So so let me ask you the question: Who are the geographic winners and losers of the pandemic? How much of it is related to that salt? deduction changing for real estate and do you think there's a a move afoot to tie a rollback of salt to the infrastructure bill do you think this has any legs that this will change and i'm not asking this because it personally hit me in the pocketbook it did but it's a fascinating subject sure sure i think uh so you know essentially it's a ten thousand dollar uh exemption uh cap on property taxes and uh state and local taxes and salt you know when i grew up salt stood for strategic arms limitation (laughs) treaty but uh and then there was salt too um this is a a different salt that you know uh cuts closer to home so to speak and uh and really in high cost high-tax states are very vulnerable. You know, the offset to this was to double the standard deduction 
And so I remember being, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, because this went into effect January 1st of 2018, I remember going to a conference in Dallas, and we were sort of brainstorming our next conference and what were some of the things we were going to talk about. And I brought this up, and everybody from the Midwest, like, stared at me, like, what are you talking about? Like, because they don't have the same, you know, high taxes, I mean, they, you know, relative to, you know, different locales they might, but in the context of, you know, New York uh, State or New Jersey or Connecticut or California, Illinois, you know, these are really uh, consequential. And um, and I think, you know, aside from Rockland County, New York being like the highest property tax per capita, I, I believe I've read that in a Bloomberg story, or it might be Westchester. Like, I think they're vying for the top, um, you know, really big numbers. And that's sort of been baked into housing prices. So really what this does is it, you know, if you, you know, if you uh, just to be aspirational for a second, you know, you buy a house for $10 million and the typical annual property taxes are about 175000 uh, and let's just say your state and local taxes uh, are the same, so double your property taxes, uh, and you could only write off $10,000 now, uh, that really changes the math uh, substantially. And so what you've seen is, you know, higher-end housing markets pre-pandemic uh, in the suburban markets really get hit hard, the North Shore of Long Island, a lot of the higher-end housing markets around the country that we track, most um, noticeably in California, uh, where we, we focus on Southern California, uh, you definitely have seen prices uh, fall as a result. Um, not overnight, it's sort of been a gradual um, decline. Uh, and, you know, it was really interesting, and again, back to my idea that the pandemic has been this great disruptor is that Florida has been and was anticipated, you know, January 1st, 2018, the Florida real estate community, I cover about 14 housing markets in, in Florida on the Gulf side and the ocean side. And, um, and everybody's just, you know, ready, you know, they're just there, you know, ready for this massive flood of demand from the Northeast. And, while it was there, it was tepid. And once the pandemic hit, and I think, you know, for many that had been on the fence and uh, skewing to the wealthy in the high-cost housing markets, you did see this uh, surge in activity during, you know, after the lockdown and in Florida. Uh, and surprisingly, at least to me, it hasn't stopped that, right. you know, the contract data we're seeing uh, you know, in many of these, in the five counties in Southern California, uh, Southern Florida, we're seeing contract activity that is 40 to 150 wow. percent up year over year in March. And uh, and it is really uh, absorbing the uh, what Florida had been known for on the ocean side for a tremendous buildup in inventory, especially as you skew up in price. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that get burned off. Um, wow. Inventory is definitely coming down because sales activity has been at record levels. And I think a lot of it had to do with 
the the salt tax and the um, and the uh, and the ability to work remotely. Um, right. But, uh, uh, you know, but the pandemic. We should look at the pandemic as sort of the trigger or the 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 instigator of this because I think it accelerated everything. It accelerated remote you know, remote software by probably a decade. It accelerated, you know, what was an anemic response to the tax, um, the salt tax, uh, federal law, uh, all of a sudden became like a big marketing point. Hmm. So I think if, you know, there there is surprisingly, um, a you know, an appetite for putting patches on the law, um, but that comes with, you know, um, revenue loss. Right, and so, uh, so I, 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 I would say that the odds of something are, are you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a sure thing. It seems it's not a sure thing, but it, it certainly the odds of it are, are greatly improved um, over the last couple of months in what I'm detecting. Huh. But that doesn't mean it'll happen, but I, but I do, but I, do, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Well, it'll be interesting if it did. There's there's a house I'm enamored with on on Center Island, a few <laughs> doors down by from Sean Hannity, um, that's listed for sale for nine point nine million. And really, un, until we get that salt deduction back, I, I can't even think about yeah, um, yeah buying I, a house uh, that's ten times the cost of the house I currently am in. Yeah, so no, so I'm I'm rooting for the struggle. salt deduction to come back, <laughs> so I but, could. But here's the th- but, but here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing is, you know, you'd have to act immediately because the market. Right. Everybody else will pile into it. I I literally just sent you, I just sent you a link to that house, which has its own little nestled cove harbor marina, but it only holds two jet skis. So I don't know if that'll work for us, but my wife and I love looking at that sort of stuff. And I'm like, honey, what about this house? (laughs) Right. Well, everybody during this lockdown, I think, you know, is, you know, uh, uh, you know, if they, you know, didn't have worries about being employed or, you know, they, they were thinking about the future and like when we get out of lockdown, uh, I was obsessed with I, w- I want a lot more land with a with a barn. So, you know, we're like looking all over Connecticut uh, just just because and the you go demand, in and you'll get more but, land at the same price. You get you get about. Yeah, you get like three or four times the land and the same house for half the price, and you know an historic barn or something along that line. So, uh, right. So I want is, a standalone uh, garage, which I don't have. I have an, a my garage is part of the house, and right. if I can if I can get enough land where I could build a freestanding garage, it will remove limitations on on how many uh, how many cars I can have. <laughs> How many uh, bring a trailer visits right. uh, you can make? I'm I'm literally wearing a bring a trailer trailer T-shirt as we're recording this. All right, so right. let's jump. But by the way, there, there was a term for that sort of Zillow. I'm drawing a blank on it. That sort of Zillow browsing. You can absolutely just get lost in in that world, and uh, it, it's pure escapism. Looking at five and ten and twenty five million. By the way, the funny thing is. What's shocking about not putting a, a, a cap on the price when you browse Zillow is that you'll look in a particular neighborhood. Hey, show me all the houses in East Hampton. Oh, right. And, and, you know, above a million dollars. 
And you'll see these things come up at 40 and 60 and $90 million. It's um, out in Montauk, Dick Cavett's property, which apparently is 18 acres or something like that. It was up for sale for some ungodly number. I don't know right. if, he got, if he got it, but it's shocking when we see what ha- happens. All right, before I run out of time, let me jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, and, and let me try and um, run through these more quickly than usual because we have been BSing the whole time. Tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime entertainment. So uh, so actually, I... Uh... I am one of those people, like we, we cut the cable, uh, during the lockdown. And, uh, and so I have Hulu, I have Netflix, I have all these things. It's amazing, but I don't watch it. My <laughs> wife watches it. I just don't watch TV other than, you know, a few Yankee games. Uh, I just, and, uh, you know, you've said to me, Hey, we're in the golden age of television. I literally, I think I'm becoming my dad, like who never liked TV. I just don't watch TV anymore, um, hardly at all. So, so I I'm sort of the uh, the opposite of wow. uh, most of my peers. It seems. Huh. So no Queen's Gambit or anything like that. Nothing. It, it is. Uh, uh, you know, I think the closest I get to, and and this is just silly, uh, is that I'm sort of obsessed with uh, radio detective shows from the 1940s and 50s. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts of like old radio shows to sort wow. of white noise when I'm working. So I am, I just don't fit the profile. Now that I know that that's your gig, let me just suggest something that you might enjoy, which okay. is a little off to the side from that. John Pizzarelli hosts a show called Radio Deluxe, where it's just him and his wife. Yes. And for 90 I do minutes. listen to that. Oh, that's amazing. I that, do so I do listen to that. Yeah, it's great music. Plus, they're both so knowledgeable that you get it's color on. Fun. Yeah, you get color on the songs and on the writers, and and a lot of the stuff is from the era you were just describing. Although I had no yeah, idea you were. Of, uh, uh, yeah, I I feel like I'm a young soul, but with old taste. <laughs> so. Right. Right, and they do mix uh, it up. It's some newer stuff, but a lot of it traces back to the Great American Songbook, and that obviously is 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's very different than uh, modern stuff. Um, let's talk about mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, I've had two uh, that I really would jump would jump out at me. One is um, my first job coming out of New York. I actually went to college to be in the hotel business. My father had built a hotel when I was younger, um, and I didn't know what else to do. And I knew something with real estate, but not... Um, specifically, and I lasted for three years and um, pretty much hated every minute of it. Um, uh, the company that I worked for was eventually acquired by Marriott, and I just it just wasn't I wasn't passionate about it. However, uh, I just my first boss, a gentleman named John Nelson, uh, really taught me how to navigate corporate politics and um, how to like really cut away at the sort of the noise and solve the problem. And I just never forgot it. And, uh, and that was, you know, 40 plus years ago. And um, I still touch base with him every so often. He really uh, meant a lot to me. You know, um, the I... other mentor I have, the other mentor I had was uh, 
uh, one of the founder of Douglas Salmon is Dottie Herman, who oh, sure. uh, she's the one that, um, uh, you know, basically implored me because of, I was, you know, she found me, I was good. I would, I would brief the executives about a, um, uh, you know, the state of the market and what was going on. And, and, uh, she implored me to essentially, you know, um, expand and write about other markets that I don't necessarily work in. And, um, and that's, <laughs> that's what I, she really championed me and really relied on, you know, what the market number, which was very contrarian to the, the sort of real estate zeitgeist, which is it's always a good time to buy and, <laughs> or sell uh, or sell. Right. And uh, and it was more like we want to give and that's been their mantra. It's sort of entrepreneurial. Like we want to give our customers, uh, you know, a neutral market benchmark so they can make informed decisions. That's essentially what it was. And to me, that was sort of shocking, and I was really – I went with it. And uh, now we, you know, issue hundreds of reports a year, and they're used by the Fed and all the, uh, like, alphabet soup of uh, agencies in Washington, and they're not seen as a brochure. And huh. and to her credit, that was uh, – you know, she really fueled that in me, and I, I'll forever be grateful. So I want to re- – first of all, you reminded me of a very infamous – National Association of Realtors advertisement they threw out early in the collapse in the mid 2000s, which is it's always a great time so to many. buy or sell a house. I don't know if you remember right. that, but it was a hilarious. I well, do. Well, you you know if you have a stock market background, hey, it's either a good time to buy or sell, but not both, <laughs> unless you're the broker taking the piece in the middle. So on either side, right, exactly. Right. But, right. But I have a very vivid recollection of being on a panel with Dottie Herman in like oh five, oh six, when the rollover was just starting, and you might right. have been on that panel with us with pre Nobel Bob Schiller, if that rings a bell. Yeah, I, she wasn't with us on the. I was on like I think the panel. You were on the panel before me, and I was after. Is the one I'm remembering. Okay, I and I just remember yeah. her looking at me like I had two heads when I said, <laughs> "You know, thirty percent drop in real estate is not unthinkable for a financial crisis." And she just yeah. was aghast. I have a vivid recollection of that. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was her. Well, it's funny. Uh, uh, in 2007, you know, uh, the, the the U.S. market had already started to tank. You know, the uh, Bob Schiller, you know, the K. Schiller index peaked in two, that summer of 2006. So sales activity actually peaked in 2005. And, right. You know, it was volume then price. From that is yeah, volume leads price by you know one to right. two years, and I've learned that in many different instances. Um, but I remember. Uh, 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 he and I were on a stage at Lincoln Center. It was like three thousand people in the audience, <laughs> and the, uh, the 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 and this is two thousand seven. So Manhattan was a year or two behind the U.S. market because of Wall Street comp had really sort of extended our our boom for a few years. And uh, I remember him being asked, "Well, what do you think? Pr- how much will prices reset?" And he said, 30 to fifty percent." And there was just a gasp. <laughs> 
uh, in the audience, and he was right. Right. You know, it just it doesn't happen, and just like what I was saying earlier, like it doesn't happen immediately. It you know the you know sales drop, inventory surges, and then it takes like a year or two for prices you know for sellers to capitulate. If they don't want to sell, they don't sell. They wait, but if they have to sell more and more. Have to sell, and then boom, you know the prices are falling, and and that's what everybody I think gets wrong with these cycles. Right. They're they're always they're always stuck on what the neighbor sold the house for a year or two years ago. And it's like, hey, if you have a time machine, you could go back to 2003 and get that price. But in 08, you're, right. you're screwed. And and that 35% number came from a piece that Reinhardt and Rogoff wrote. They, they ended up writing a book oh. called This Time is Different. But it was a research yeah. piece that was out in 07 about when you have financial crises you typically see a 50% collapse in the in the real stock market. Real estate falls 30-plus percent. I mean, they weren't making predictions. They were saying, here's what the averages look like over the past eight centuries. And right. it was so prescient that they ended up writing a book about it a couple of years later. Speaking of books, what are some of your favorite books? What are you reading right now? So, uh, I, ju- so I have been on a on – a, I don't know, reading about New York and history of New York, sort of the cultural history, uh, just cool things. When I moved to the city uh, in the 80s, I was just enamored with, um, you know, uh, the grit, I guess you'd call it. And my dad outside of our office twice coming in and out of our office in Midtown and in the you know, in the nineties was mugged in broad daylight. You know, I'm thinking, wow, this is what a city, you know, and, and I was just thinking about sort of what, what are the components that sort of went into that. And so I, I just read a book called the club King and it was um, by Peter Gaddian, who is the, you know, had all these nightclubs and, you know, sort of competing with studio 54 and all that. And, and what the culture behind that and the limelight and it was fascinating read. And then the book I'm almost done with now is uh, called the history of St. Mark's. And huh. if you've ever been to Manhattan, the block, it's like a three or four block um, uh, from Astor, place to uh Tompkins square park where the riots were in the late eighties and uh, just the eclectic nature of it. And if you ever want to feel for like what New York was, although less so now, cause it's gentrified, but uh, that's where it was. It was gritty. And um, I just love, I just love that uh, about New York. So any kind of history of New York, and this was, this book is called the death of uh, St. Mark's place. Hmm. Um, Speaking of gentrification, read. Over in Alphabet City, near there, ABCD is is why it got its name. Uh, the gentrification used to be in on Avenue A. Has it penetrated to Avenue C and oh, it's D? Completely, it's completely gentrified. Wow. Um, sort Brooklyn. of. My, uh, I remember, you know, when they had to close Tompkins Square Park because. I remember one time daring myself to walk through it right. and it was literally, you know, junkies and homeless and right. uh, gangs. I mean, it was just like in the movies. It was, um, uh, and, and, you know, just going in that area was a, you know, a little rough. And um, I remember there was a new conversion uh, called Christadora house, which is on the Avenue B on the Eastern side of Tompkins square park. 
And the Christadora House is infamous in sort of local New York circles because of all the protests outside of it, because it was a more affluent, although relative to today's prices, you know, it was a deal. But where they spray painted on the front door, die, yep, scum. And that phrase, phraseology became like the mantra of sort of the anti uh, gentrification movement. Um, and so many houses are buildings in that, you know, I, I remember doing, you know, appraisals in a condo, uh, co-op conversion and uh, modest place. And across the street, you know, it's, it's all, um, you know, people basically uh, camping out in, in an abandoned house. And eventually, you know, many of these were acquired by the squatters. Uh, I had a friend, I, I met a friend of mine or not a class colleague. We weren't that close in high school, but in, I grew up in DC right. and uh, he, he was like one of these people that ended up like taking control of an abandoned building and then selling it uh, with his buddies and like never has to work again. Huh. Um, and, and absolutely insane. Let me, uh, get, let me get to the last two questions before I run out of time. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in the real estate industry? Well, if it's the appraisal industry, I, at this point, would say, hold on <laughs> uh, before you go this path, uh, just because it's, it's uh, you know, in the generic sort of mortgage world, it's dying a slow death. In right. the specialty world, like what we do, it's, you know, I, I feel very confident of, for a long, you know, there's always a niche that is hard to automate. Um, in terms of the real estate industry, um, uh, you know, when we think of that, we think of brokerage. Uh, you know, it's like anything, like professional athletes. You have, you know, the, the top... Uh, 20% makes 80% of the money. Right. And, um, and so the goal is to, you know, get to that cycle and, you know, do you want to do that? Um, I'm finding that the, uh, there's a lot more people coming out of college and, you know, uh, that coming into this, uh, industry than ever before, you know, the stereotype is like, you know, suburbanites that are, you know, bored and want to do sell, um, you know, sell real estate on the side, or it's always a side gig. Right. And I think it's one of those professions where, and I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm right. 99.9% of the real estate brokers in America today did not think about being a real estate broker till the opportunity presented itself, that they didn't, you know, in high school or college say, boy, this is what I want to do. It's always by accident. And, huh. uh, and, you know, so maybe if you're one of those people, that's something to think about. It is fascinating. Membership in the NAR fluctuates with the performance of the housing market. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's up. I should know, but I, I don't, but it's somewhere like a million, four million, five membership. And during the financial crisis, it was like down, you know, right at a million or, you know, just a hair under it. So it's, there's tremendous like upward and downward because you're living on, you're living and breathing on a hundred percent commission. And, uh, that's not for everybody. And some people have a knack for it and make a lot of money. Um, you know, nine digit, no, not not eight digit numbers. Uh Um, I mean, amazing numbers. That's amazing. But that's the exception, not the rule. And our final question, what do you know about the world of housing today that you wish you knew 
34 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Uh, so I think the first thing would be uh, is that um, is that you uh, you know don't aspire to have a bigger rental apartment. I, I mean, I I'm clearly biased. <laughs> I'm in the you know I work I do my reports uh, you know for a real estate brokerage company. I'm surrounded with brokers every day. But the one thing I really wish I had was uh, sort of the uh, more focus on um, Saving money in my twenties, uh, and then and then buying something sooner. I didn't buy my first house till about thirty six uh, because I lived in the city and you know couldn't afford the houses until I moved out to the suburbs, and um, and then have traded up from there. So I really wish that I had been a little bit more goal oriented on that earlier on. I realized later. Now part of it was starting a business put every all the money we had back into it but the money I was putting into rent I wish I had uh, thought about a little bit differently um, I, I like to say that uh, my I have four boys they're all adults you know 22 to to 32 years old and my three oldest all have houses so and you, uh, and you didn't so at that age I didn't I mean they all beat me by you know, uh, you know, seven, eight years. And uh, it's not that I didn't want to, and I could see the moment, but, you know, starting my own business and, uh, or, you know, not just me with my family um, and, uh, you know, paying too much for rent and having a nice place to rent, I think, you know, set me back at 10 or 10 or 15 years. We have been speaking with Jonathan Miller. He is the founder and CEO of Miller Samuel. If you enjoy this conversation, check out our previous 400 or so other discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss. If I did not thank the crack staff, that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Michael Boyle is our producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio.